how are you being advantaged by the slavery that happened in the US? How many countries are being protected by the military that was built on the slavery that happened in the US? How many economies are being propped up by the money that was built by the slaves that were stolen from Africa and propped up the economy in the US? So you may not have a direct impact, but in some ways, many, many of us are benefiting. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Superhuman at Work podcast, giving a quick shout out to our regular listeners who are tuning in twice a week, where we bring you new guests speaking about topics on leadership, communication, productivity, and other topics that are so essential for making you an incredible individual in the workplace, making an impact the best way possible. And so if you're just tuning in, be sure to hit that subscribe button so you can tune in regularly to these interviews. And for today, we have an incredible guest, Dr. James Pogue. So tune in, listen up and enjoy. Hey everybody listening to Superhumans at Work. This is your host, Jason Campbell. And I have a very special guest today who's going to be talking about unconscious bias and multi-generational biases that happen in the workplace. Especially today, we've seen so many movements happening on Black Lives Matter. We see people are really speaking up when it comes to the biases that exist, the privileges that exist, the different situations that we all have brought up have created different realities or ways that we perceive reality today. And so what are the responsibilities and the things that we can do within leaders in an organization or as members of an organization to make sure that we minimize this bias, that we create equal opportunity for everyone, and that we behave in a way where we can see more equality around the workplace, which also trickles down to more equality around the world. Dr. James Pogue has been working with organizations around the world for years. He's a military veteran, a musician, and a martial arts expert. And he really goes into teams where he helps team members, leaders, and executives recognize what these biases are and what actions they can take to minimize it and create more quality within the workplace. I'm so excited to have him here to share some of his research, share the ways that he's led teams so that we can all evolve as individuals as well. Dr. Pogue, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Jason, I'm glad to be here. This is going to be a fun conversation, a challenging one, of course, but the only way that we can make this happen sometime is to wrap it up in ways that people can digest it. And so if we can have a little bit of fun, smile a little bit, even though it's a difficult, challenging circumstance, I think that's a great way to make it happen. So I'm ready to jump off a cliff with you. All right, let's do this. I'm here to learn as well. I mean, I've been following the movements. I've been trying to be as aware as possible. I recognize my own biases as well. And this comes across, you know, gender. There's just different ways that I'll perceive it. And so when you walk into an organization and you're going to deal with leaders, and let's say it's a primarily, you know, white male leadership team, there must be a lot of resistance when they bring in people to recognize these challenges. Like what's the typical attitude that you face when people start tackling these sensitive topics? You know, what's been interesting, Jason, is that probably over there the last you know, three or four weeks, maybe a month, since things have really exploded, the attitude has shifted. You know, there's been a lot of self-exploration that people are beginning to do. And some of the education that they did not receive in middle school and primary school or high school or trade school or college or even in the military is happening with self-education now in a way that is more significant. So that curiosity is there. 
that intention to change is there in ways that it had not been, say, six, nine months ago. I would say nine months, 10 months, 12 months ago, perhaps I might have been brought in to do a talk, a workshop, perhaps even a consultation for an organization that wanted to shift, right? That wanted to, to learn more, that wanted to engage more. But there are companies now that are looking to break the mold. They are looking to shatter the earth that they are on. And those are the critical kinds of leaders that is really a joy to work with. This is really hard work. And for some of us, the learning that has to happen is going to break open parts of your spirit. And you're going to realize that unbeknownst to you, hopefully, hopefully unbeknownst to you, you have been in a situation where you have treated people badly. Your organization has policies and practices that have disadvantaged people for years, decades, right? And so that takes some hard work. That takes some massive self-reflection. And so for those leaders that are doing that, I'm so grateful to them. There's this idea about being grateful for the things that you wish had never happened. And I am grateful for the the unfortunate tragedies that have taken place because it gives the opportunity for massive learning and growth. So there is a different kind of traction that's happening. True enough, some folks are like, hey, I don't know what to do. I'm scared this is going to really impact me negatively in terms of my organization. What should I do? So there's a fear that's there as well. But we start where we start. As long as you don't stay where you start, that's okay. And I love how you framed it because it is an unfortunate event. I mean, a lot of us have seen the scene. We know what triggered everything. And I personally had never paid so much attention to it until I've seen the events unfold in recent times. And now that I have, I've tried to educate myself and I still realize that the organizations might still have some biases and I personally have some biases, but now I'm actually consciously working towards it, but I'm just at the beginning. I feel like these are the baby steps and I feel I compare it to, you know, personal growth education. Like if there's not a problem, you're not working on it until there's a level of awareness. And I feel like now more than ever, that awareness has been brought to everybody's face. And now it's kind of like understanding what are the first steps to take. And so you're working with these bold organizations. They want to make some radical changes. But for any individual who's listening in right now, where are the places to get started to get more informed, to build on that awareness and to take those initial actions to really reduce those biases? Sure. So I think to your point, that awareness is critical. So if I happen to be a white guy, if I happen to be a white lady, if I happen to be anything other than the the group that is perhaps being impacted, I would want to begin to educate myself. And so you can start with things like, for example, white fragility. What is it? How does it impact me? How does that connect to white privilege? What is that? These are things that a person can do all by themselves. They don't require your black friend or your brown friend to train you up on this, which is another piece of the conversation. Is it fair to ask your black friend to help you understand something that you could learn on your own? Do some of the unpacking yourself. And the reality is that this idea of white fragility or white privilege exists in the space and time so that you can learn about it on your own. Now, that being said, let me just put this out there as a, as a subject for some folks that have already begun that journey. They've already begun to, to do some reading. So we take this thing as a white fragility and we execute it in our mind like it's a noun, that it exists. It is something that is there. It is something that impacts both white and black and brown people in a variety of ways. All right, so we assume that it exists. Let me challenge you and your listeners to take the next step. And that is to consider that if white fragility exists, then the opposite of it must exist as well. And so what then is the opposite of white fragility? What is the opposite of white? For the moment, let us say that it's black folks, right? And what is the opposite of fragility? Let us, for the moment, let's call that strength. 
right? That white fragility is not something to be angry and frustrated and disappointed or scared of. Neither is black strength, right? This idea that some of your black colleagues have had to carry a particular burden on their backs, on their shoulders, in their hearts, in their minds in a particular way that has put them in a position to have to deal with things every single day, have shoulders that are a little stronger, that had to be stronger than their colleagues. I was talking to a lady, she's 21 years in her particular industry, and she is tired. She is tired and she is frustrated. And she does not have the time or the bandwidth to execute a conversation with one of her white colleagues about, hey, talk to me about this white privilege, white fragility thing. Can you help me understand that? No, she said, I don't have time for that, right? She has instead been using her strength to go through every day at work, to show up at work and be looked at a certain way, using that strength to talk to her children a certain way, to help them survive as they drive home when you get their driver's license to execute conversations with her sons. She's had to use her strength for that, right? So right now, I think that there is so much learning that can happen, but let me encourage your listeners, encourage all of us to take the step after the next step. If you haven't had the courage to look up white fragility and white privilege, take the next step. What is the opposite of that? That's gotta be real too. And, and think about it in the context of humans that you know. Your program's called Superhumans for a reason. There's a lot of superhumans that work right across from you, and you don't know that they're superhuman. You don't know the strength that it takes for them to be superhuman, the kind of vision they've had to have, the kind of hearing they've had to have, right? That what they have to lift just to get to work every day has been enough to break many, many others. Some of these superhumans should never have had to be superhuman to be able to work in an organization for five or 10 or 15 years. It puts things in perspective. Like you really have such a different path to walk that makes it so that you're building like calluses here. Like you have to go through this day in, day out. And it's something that I could never understand. It'd be so ignorant to claim that I would because it's not a path that I've had to walk. And so I've read White Fragility. And in there, I also relate to a video. Uh, it was actually Jay Shetty released a video and I thought it was brilliant. It was basically him sitting in front of a judge who basically says like, are you guilty or not guilty? And he was like, I'm not guilty. And even my context, I was like, yeah, I don't, I'm not guilty. But then after going through that research, I'm like, no, I'm guilty. And now I'm kind of stepping here where I was like, okay, I've done one step. But it's almost like, okay, I've done that step in the moment because I was inspired. Now that I've completed that step, I don't want to feel like my journey's over. Like it feels like that's just the minimum to start. And so as somebody's going through this, and for everybody listening, like White Fragility is a powerful piece of literature to go through. It ends with a what now. And within organizations, like I've seen a lot of shifts happen. I'm seeing a lot of people standing bravely and advocating openly about what they believe in. And so is this the natural next step? When you're in a position, let's say, of privilege, and now you need to step into power and be more vulnerable in the process, are these the right actions to take? And what would be some of the best actions to take? Sure. Whatever your next steps are going to be, let's make a couple of assumptions. And one of those is going to be that you're going to be walking with new legs. You're going to feel a little awkward, like a toddler taking his or her first steps. And it's going to be unsteady, and that's okay. But you got to take those steps. And you, you're going to need some help, some crutches, uh, a cane as you get stronger and work through rehab, right? You got to go get a trainer that's going to help you get there. And so in some cases, people like me have raised our hands and say, hey, we'll help you, right? But so my comment is this. Choose the right persons to help. 
just because the person next to you has a different skin tone doesn't mean that they have the capacity, the bandwidth, or the interest in training you. There is someone, whoever, that is their job to train you. You just don't show up at the gym and say, hey, person next to me, help me better understand how to lift this weight. No, you go get a trainer that knows what they are talking about, and you tell them what you want to work on, and you say, will you design a plan to help me? And so for those organizations that are handling it smartly, that are handling it efficiently, they are going out and getting professional help the exact same way as if they wanted to reorganize their tech network, if they wanted to reorganize their marketing and sales department. They wouldn't go get somebody off the streets. they go get an expert. They wouldn't go get somebody who likes to watch television. they go get somebody who understands how marketing and television works. So do not overburden people who are already burdened on your team because you're feeling awkward and uncomfortable and fragile in your new legs, right? Your new fragile legs do need help, but get help from the right source. Your black friend, your black colleague is not there to be your stepping stone, your knowledge base. They don't get paid to do that. Your black friend is in accounting or in marketing or in sales. They don't get paid to do diversity work. They're not professionals at that. Their existence and their situation they've experienced and their skin, they are an expert in that. But that is not the same as being a diversity uh, professional. And if you're not careful, you can wound people who are already scratched and harmed. You can deepen biases that people already have. Go and get the information and the help from the people and the organizations who have agreed and become experts at this information so they can help you the best. And that's why I think it's a blessing that we had our conversation. Actually, it was because you ended up doing a training with our Mind Valley team, and our team was so blown away by your material that they recommended that you come on the show. And I'm so grateful that you're here because exactly as you mentioned, one of my friends who's a black man from America was just commenting on social media. I was just reading about how he's been swarmed with messages from his white friends asking him questions, and he's he's like tired of it. He's like, guys, take initiative. It's not like you don't know where to find what you need. You can just go out and find it. If it's so important to you, you'd go and Google it. Stop just deferring it to me to do the work for you. And so that's already some, some great steps for people to do, not to go step on the people that's already been doing the work themselves. And so as we have someone like you guiding us through this, so I've seen organizations take bold steps, like saying, we're going to bring people of color. And if we're talking about other levels of the equality, if we're including like gender biases and generational biases, which are also topics you speak about, they're going boldly and stepping into making sure that happens. When I started the podcast, the first thing I wanted to do is actually bring gender bias. And this is because in the speaker world, especially in the business, it's very male dominated. And then I said, okay, I'm going to bring gender equality. And I've worked through that. And I'm happy that I've reached it at this time. After especially, I noticed there was a slew of men that followed on the show. And I was like, wait, that's a lot of men. And since this event happened, now I've actually added a new lens, which is, oh my God, let's see how much diversity I'm bringing racially. And then I realized that that same slew of men were also white men. And so now one of the initiatives I want to do is bring more people of color so I can have racial equality and more presence on the podcast. Are these great steps to take? And are there more things I can do in the process as an individual? Is this the right things organizations should be stepping towards? So if I were to look at you as an organization, as a business, as a complex organization, I think what you're doing is what most organizations do in their first steps, those first new leg steps. Let me make sure that I am ticking the right boxes, right? That I have both gender diversity and ethnic diversity and and so on and so forth. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. And let me push to the next step, which is when you do have that white guy on, are you asking him about diversity? Are you asking him about inclusion? Are you asking him about bias, right? If he's a leader of a complex organization that hires services, has clients and vendors of all kinds and types, he ought to have an answer to some of your questions around diversity, inclusion, and bias. And it is a fair ask. How is your organization reacting to issues of diversity, inclusion, and bias, either what's happening in the States or what's happening in Indonesia? What is your stance on this? Uh, Sir, I noticed that you don't have a CEO statement as it relates to some of your colleagues that might around either Black Lives Matter or gender equality. I wanted to unpack that a little bit. Can you share with me your thinking on that? How has your hiring policy shifted or changed in order to create a balance in terms of your hiring, retention, and promotion? These are reasonable questions to ask a leader, right? Especially in 2020. Now, of course, I wouldn't, I wouldn't gotcha someone. I say these are some of the questions I'm gonna ask, but they'd be equal on par with everything else. If you're gonna ask somebody about how you made your first million, because you made it, what were you thinking about? Where were the markets that you went to? Why did you select those markets? How did gender factor into your market selection? How did ethnicity factor into your market selection? When you give back your money and you are donating or donating your time, how are you doing that? How are you making those decisions? It is a reasonable thing for a sophisticated organization to ask complex questions around race. And those that can answer these questions in meaningful ways, they are the ones that have the deeper track record, the opportunity for gravitas to grow, to expand, to really fill their lungs with a richness and diversity, inclusion, and bias that will allow them to connect with people across the globe in ways that other organizations simply can't. Here's the last piece. Authenticity is critical. If I'm talking to you as a CEO, and if I don't hear coming out of your mouth anything that suggests that you have a care or concern about diversity, inclusion, and bias, gender, ethnicity, race, religion, sexuality, politics, ability, disability, all of these things are part of the broad matrix that makes up most of us. I call these things the big eight, these big eight diversity piece that if you were to shift one of them, it dramatically changes who you are. If I go from being male to female, it dramatically changes how the world sees me. If how and who I love my sexuality changes overnight, my religious frame of reference changes overnight, my political stance changes overnight, ability disability, I can't see tomorrow. How does my world shift overnight? Age, if I go from being 20 years younger to 20 years older overnight, how does that change everything about me? Socioeconomics. If I put a zero behind everything that I make, how does that change my life, my children's life? If my parents had a heck of a lot of money or now they have no money, how does that change the kind of schools I went to, right? So we have to begin to ask these questions if we're going to be a complex organization that wants to change the world. One of the things I challenge organizational leaders on, what is your organization's mission? You have all these really nice sayings on your wall, your mission and your values, but do you want to change the world? Do you want to change the world? Or you just, do you want to make better widgets? It's fine to make great widgets. But the best organizations are out there trying to change the world. And some of them may not be trying to change it for the better. And so we need some of the good guys and girls out there. We need superhumans, super women, super men, super people who are trying to change the world to make it a better place. And if you're one of the organizations that is trying to do this, then say it out loud and come up with a plan to make it happen that it impacts all people equally. 
I should say that impacts all people unequally because we're not all in the same place. Damn. I love that feedback. I love that action step. And even as you gave it to me individually, as what I can do as I interview guests, I think it also resonates for anybody listening, realizing that as an employee, those are questions I should be bringing up to my leadership team. These are questions that should be discussed between the companies, the suppliers we choose, or any other partner and affiliate that we make our business run with. If these are the values that we stick to and we want to bring it forward, I know for Mind Valley, like we claim our first value is unity. And to bring unity means we need to speak out to these issues and we need to make those choices more conscious. And I love that you've given us some very practical ways that we can get, not just from the step one, which is just getting more information. That's like the minimum. But now that you actually started walking, understanding that, yes, you might be on those wobbly legs, don't rely on the people that have already been shouldering the weight to carry you with your weak legs. Go out and make your own steps and find the professionals and find the right information so you can be supported until you can start running. And as you apply these, one of the best things to do is ask these powerful questions. You've already told us about these eight groups of people that are not necessarily in a position of privilege, but are in a disadvantaged position. And now we can actually bring these issues to light. We can make sure these right conversations happen. And I guess I wanted to close off with, you know, over the years, like this has been something that's been at the back of people's minds. Like I'm from Canada and in Canada, it's not as open. It's almost like a behind the doors judgments that happen. And for that, it's almost like we're saying like, oh, we're stepping into this like bypass of it. We're not confronting it. What is the message that we tell to people that feel like they're outside of this realm? Like they feel like, oh yeah, this is great, but I've never been, I've never been that person. Like it's an attack to the character. And I, I saw this point being mentioned in, in White Fragility and it actually makes people not even address the issue, not even see the issue. And so what could be a great way of closing to tell people that seem to have these, I don't know if it's called rose-colored goggles, blindness, what do you call it? And how do we make people make sure that they get caught on their own bullshit about it? Well, I would start with rose-colored glasses, another way of saying white privilege or privilege. I remember when I was, I was a young professor and I was being asked or being talked to by a Cuban female professor. It was a room full of people who are from different variety of backgrounds. They're trying to, they were kind of discussing this issue of skin tone privilege and gender privilege. It was just going around the room as people were eating and drinking. And she says to me, James, did you ever consider the idea that if everybody in the world was of darker skin tone, was black, you would be hyper-privileged? Whoa, stop me like, I, like a ton of oxen had just stood in front of me. And I realized that because of my gender, I live in a patriarchal space. I get privilege. I've been so inundated with the fact that I am a person of dark skin tone in the U.S. and how that has impacted my life that I kind of forgot I'm privileged as a guy, right? I'm so glad and grateful for her for bringing that to the front of my brain. So I say that to other folks as well, that this privilege thing is real. It's not to say you didn't work hard. It's not to say that you didn't go through a bunch of crap to get to where you are. It is to say that your skin tone never was a part of what hurt you on the way to getting there, right? If you happen to be a white guy, if you happen to be a white lady. Now, if you're a lady, your gender may have been a stumbling block in certain people's minds. It may, you may be something you had to navigate, but your skin tone wasn't. But for other people, it is a hindrance. And here's the thing I would stretch that out even further. There are very few cultures where there are different skin tones within that complexion group where being darker isn't received or talked about in a negative light, right? It happens all over the world. Our Asian friends have a similar kind of understanding at times when it comes to darker skin folk, right? So we have to be conscious of this. 
and recognize that it happens all over and start to unpack it in our own cultures. The other piece is if you're in a country where you don't think that it's there, how are you being advantaged by the slavery that happened in the US? How many countries are being protected by the military that was built on the slavery that happened in the US, right? How many economies are being propped up by the money that was built by the slaves that were stolen from Africa and propped up the economy in the US? So you may not have a direct impact, but in some ways, many, many of us are benefiting. So take the moment to say, okay, well, I didn't enslave anyone. No, nah, you didn't, but maybe you benefited from it. I'm not asking you to dig into your pocket and give me $25. I am asking you to dig into your heart and give yourself 25 minutes of learning and leverage that in the 2.5 days of learning and the 25 days of learning and to talk to your kids about it so that we don't replicate that which has already caused so much harm to so many people. I'll close with this. There's a friend of mine, he's a white guy, about 65 or so. We struck up a friendship over the last two, two and a half years. He lost his wife after 30 plus years of marriage. And I lost my eldest daughter about a year, year and a half ago in uh, childbirth, connected to childbirth. She was 25, 26 at the time. And so we're talking about this and kind of commiserating over it. And so I put that as the backdrop for what I'm going to tell you next. He tells me about 10 days ago that, James, I just don't see color. I don't see black and white. Now, that's the kind of thing that can scratch a person of color. Like, what are you talking about? You see, I got a brown shirt on. The heck are you talking about, right? And so I said, well, can you unpack that for me? Because again, I've raised my hand and said, I'm a professional at this. I've got more bandwidth than other people might. I've trained myself to listen. He talks to me. And by the time he unpacks it, because it takes time to make change, it takes time to unpack feelings. He makes it perfectly clear to me without saying these words that it is an affirmation for him right? Just like some of us write on the mirror, I am enough. I will get the promotion. I will lose this weight. I don't see color. He's not saying it in the present tense. He's not believing it that way. He's saying this is what he wants so that I can exhale and say, okay, I see where you're coming from. And I said, well, now imagine now when we were at lunch, you know, a couple of weeks ago, if a waiter would have come up to us or one of the other patrons would have come up to us and said, hey, I don't see you as a man who lost his wife. I see you as someone who's going through a tough time and grieving. All of us have gone through tough times and are grieving or going through tough times and working it through. You're going to be OK. I said, how would that make you feel? He says, man, I don't want to punch that guy in the throat. He doesn't understand my pain. I said, aha. That's it. They don't understand your pain. And the language that they use diminished it, right? It dismissed it. It normalized it. Herein was the place where we could get to to turn the corner on him understanding why him saying, I don't see color, even though it's an affirmation for him, scratches me, right? While some people who are really good people will pull out, it's not that Black Lives Matter, all lives matter. Can't we agree to that? Well, hey, hey, hey. It's not that all lives don't matter. But what you're saying diminishes my pain and my experience. Because I've had to be strong when I shouldn't have had to be strong. All the energy, think about all of the time and energy that Black and Brown leaders and other leaders have used fighting this diversity and race issue, not just in the States, but around the globe. All of the brain power 
that was used on there. What could they have done with that? What could they have solved the problems of the world that could have been solved? How much could they have loved their children more? How much more could they have loved their countries? How much more peace could we have built? How many more fields could we have unmined and filled with something else? How many wars would have been prevented if those minds and hearts would have been leveraged towards peace and prosperity as opposed to trying to figure out the race problem? There's so much more we can do that our children will be able to do, our grandchildren will be able to do if they're not having to fight the same damn battle that we've been fighting for decades. So with that, that's part of the reason why I don't mind putting my shoulder to the wheel and leaning in as hard as I can because the next generation, the generation after that, they got things that they need to do. They've got other big ideas that need to be solved. Somebody's got to cure cancer. Somebody's got to do that. And if we solve this problem, maybe it provides the intellectual, emotional, and otherwise bandwidth for big ideas to happen. So I'm all on board for my part in the game right now. And to the extent that I can help you or anybody else, this is how it works. The only way we make it work, everybody grab your part, grab your oar, and do your work. And if, if you've got new legs on this, your oar might be smaller than mine. You might have a teaspoon, and I've got something else, but put your teaspoon in the water and let's work. Right. I'm not going to let you get away without work just because you got a teaspoon. Let's make it happen. I love it. Dr. James Pogue, you've given us so much value on the show. And for everybody listening, this has been the best conversation to realize how early in the process I still am. There's so much more for me to learn, so much more for me to do. And I so appreciate that we can bring these conversations forward to the audience. I want to bring more of these conversations forward. And honestly, you've given us amazing value through this interview. And I just want to thank you for showing up and playing the role that you play in doing what you do, because I think it's much needed. And it's great to see that people are listening and that change is happening. And we want that change to go all the way. So thank you so much for coming. And I know you woke up at quite an early time to make this happen. I hope this is not the last time we have a conversation. This is just the first. And for everybody listening, do your work. You've been told what can be done. You have some steps to take and go forth with your teaspoon and scoop some water and make it as big as you can in the process. We're all in this together. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.